0: This is interesting. I want to talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis, which you never thought that you would hear about on a coffee history show. This is Coffee 101, brought to you by Umble Coffee Company. I'm Kenneth Thomas, and every week my coffee friends and I are bringing you the absolute, absolute best coffee education you can find out there in the coffee verse. On the show today, we are talking coffee history. This is our second in a two-part series on coffee history, and we are starting around the Industrial Revolution and late 1800s and going to present day. I'm joined again by my good coffee friend and roaster, Jonah Holland of
1: Unfiltered Coffee Company. Jonah, what's up? Hey, Kenneth, excited to be back again in the studio talking about coffee leading up to modern day. Yep. And at this
0: point in coffee history, coffee still tastes like crap.
1: Let's just be honest. That's fair. I mean, as we said uh, a little bit earlier, they started adding milk and sugar to it. And at this point, I'm sure it was a whole lot of milk and a whole lot of sugar. That's right. And coffee taste actually gets worse
0: at this point. So we've at least had people roasting their own coffee at home. We talked about the Civil War and people roasting coffee, grinding it up with the butt of their guns and drinking it, and that's okay. Like, that was actually probably to that point in history, that was the highest point for coffee as far as where coffee shines in the world. Now, we're eventually going to get to third wave coffee, which is where we are today, Um which is for sure the highest point as far as coffee's peak. But this would have been the second highest is people are roasting it at home and they're drinking it fresh. They're grinding it fresh, drinking it fresh. But we've got the Industrial Revolution, and that does a lot of great things but a lot of bad things to coffee. And so we're going to get into that. And this is the introduction of what we would call the first wave of coffee. Let's start at just the coffee farm itself. In Brazil, it's fairly easy to access the land. It's not super, super hilly, at least where they grow coffee. You're starting to see coffee production in Brazil like grow like gangbusters, Uh, By the turn of the century around 1900, 90% of world coffee production is now actually coming from Central and South America with that majority being Brazil. With the Industrial Revolution, you have trains. With trains, you can get coffee from way deep inland Magically to port. And so we're starting to see more production, easier transportation, and it's, it's a game changer.
1: Now, with the rapid growth of growing beans and then transporting them by train to port, as you said, Kenneth, we needed a way to keep the beans themselves fresher. And that led to a major innovation in coffee, the invention of vacuum sealing to then pack the coffee beans in keep them fresher for a longer amount of time. And by that end user, it's, it's going to be a lot higher quality of a product than what they were able to get before. That's right.
0: And, and even before that innovation, roasting became something that was done before the consumer got the end product. So, again, around the same time, Jonah, you have where roasters can actually pull the beans out of the roaster more efficiently because of the way they've changed the mechanics of how it works and they can stop that roasting process. So there was a couple of different ways so one way is if you think about it almost like the the hub of a we'll say a bike wheel being on um, on a on a pipe they would roast in a drum roaster and we'll get into the details of stuff like drum roasters and things like that when we talk about uh, roasting in a coming episode. But they would roast, and when they wanted it stopped, they could pull the whole drum out and empty it it, almost into like a vat uh, and stop the roasting process. And that made a huge difference in saying, okay, maybe we don't have to sell the consumer green beans. Maybe we can go ahead and roast those beans And just sell them the roasting beans. And another big innovation you had in the roasting process uh, that came along pretty soon after is a way that they can put the baffles, which agitate and move the beans in a drum roaster, to if you opened up the side of the drum roaster, all those beans would eventually filter out because of the way the baffles are set. And we still have that design today in drum roasters um, so that you can get it from there to the cooling tray. And so those were huge innovations. And so then they started saying, okay, this is where marketing, which is sneaky, this is where marketing came in, is marketing basically pitched the idea of um, stuff like, you don't want to burn your coffee again, do you? Why don't you just buy it from us perfectly roasted? You know, or, or again, this is a time that was different than the time we live in now, and it might even market to women and say, you wouldn't want your husband disappointed in how you roasted your coffee, would you? Are you still buying green beans? And so they would put that little bit of disappointment and worry and fear, which I don't think are good marketing techniques, in uh, the consumer's head and from there, there was the shift, but you also have convenience. I mean, if that's one less piece of the puzzle that they have to deal with, then it's easier. So then you start seeing this huge shift into everybody um, buying their beans roasted. and we're we're starting to then see a decay or a slump in what Jonah, you and I would call the quality of coffee until we eventually get back to, Third wave,
1: which is going to take about 100 years at this time, we're really seeing the birth of coffee brands as we know it today. I mean, even with a man by the name of Jim Folger, starting Folgers itself, a a brand that you see everywhere today, even Maxwell House is a brand that harkens back to that long ago in coffee history. It's fascinating to see how long they really have been around and even their names, Maxwell House coming from a Nashville hotel that was famous at the time, not around today. Everybody knows the name really as the coffee itself. Folgers, the the family of Jim Folger, even being mentioned as a whaling family in Moby Dick. Yeah, that's right. And you had brands like Hills
0: Brothers, which we may have at least heard of. Like you said earlier, the, one of the Hills brothers was the guy who invented the vacuum packing to preserve the freshness longer, you know, with coffee itself. As you move through, and again, we're going to jump back to Europe here in a second, but as you, in America, move through World War I and World War II, the rations that went with our soldiers included coffee. But this time, it was not green coffee. It was, drumroll, instant coffee. My instinct was just to say awful instant coffee. <laughs> yeah, you can say that because it was
1: pretty terrible at this time. But that's all they had. At that time, instant coffee was absolutely terrible. As someone like you and I might not even want to drink it today. That's right. And so most of it, honestly, was
0: made with robusta, uh, which we will talk about in detail in another episode. But that is what was in these rations. And people still liked it because you got the the caffeine. But what's happening in the bigger world at this time is Asia got hit. They had Arabica beans, which is what we're used to today. They got hit with uh, leaf rust, which is kind of like this fungus that will basically kill off the coffee tree or coffee bush. And so they replanted with this coffee species called Canifora, which we commonly know as Robusta, which came originally out of the wild in West Africa, kind of along the Ivory Coast. Actually, technically, it came from... um, the Belgian Congo. So still pretty close. The benefit for it was that it was more resistant to leaf rust. It produced more berries. And it and for the farmer, even today, it's just flat out easier to grow. So we are in the industrial revolution or, or we're past that a little bit and we're into this just mass production. And what that mass production does is that gets coffee further and further and further into the hands of consumers. And again, right now we're still talking about the U.S. and we'll jump to Europe here in a
1: second. It just comes down to convenience, Jonah. I think that's that's what it was. Definitely so. I mean, I I agree. Sometimes the convenience really can outweigh the flavor. and In that case, you know, carrying it in your World War II rations, you can't beat the convenience. And sometimes it's worth the absolutely disgusting coffee you're about to drink. Right, exactly. And even today, well, actually today
0: you do have some specialty coffees uh, that have done instant. Uh, Starbucks is a great example. And so they are taking Arabica beans and they are making it instant, whereas... The time period we're talking about now, pretty much all of the instant coffee was robusta, um, which you know we would say for the most part doesn't taste good. Um, one cool, th- well, a couple of cool things here. So, 1938 Nescafe came out because Brazil, among others, said we have so much coffee. And at this time, people are cutting back on their coffee drinking because you know you've gotten into the Great Depression, you're in between the wars. and they're trying to find a way to make it easy, convenient, and cheap. So they go to Nestle. Nest Cafe is born, and this really kind of solidifies instant coffee as one of the options we will almost always have when it comes to coffee. Now, the tea bag, was created in response to instant coffee because they were getting crushed. Tea was getting crushed worldwide from the convenience of instant coffee. And so before that point with tea, it was the loose leaf, which we know you can still have today and is part of what we have access to today, But the actual tea bag did not come until a response from particularly Nescafe in 1938, which is kind of interesting.
1: With Robusta being so commonplace at the time, it it was still considered to be a very bad tasting coffee in general so this is where we kind of get the idea of dark roasts becoming commonplace or the default as one might say uh as you are roasting the bean the darker and darker you get you're really roasting out the original flavor of the bean itself and you're really just tasting that roast that's right that dark roasted coffee really became the most common type of coffee uh, all the way throughout the second wave. That's correct. Um,
0: And so the flavors that you would be getting in the coffee itself, as well as the aroma fragrance are like chocolate, nutty, smoky, and really even today for any kind of dark roast. But, but like you said, Jonah, this, this is where we can see the pivot point of establishing dark roast coffee as kind of the standard up up until through all the way, uh, well, like you said, second wave coffee, which we'll get into here in a second. We'll take a quick pause for a sponsor break. Humble Coffee Company does have a dark roast. And you want to hear a secret? It's actually. It is from Brazil, which is one of the highest producers of coffee still in the world. And what they do at Humble Coffee is they only offer single origin roasts. So if you like a dark roast, which there are good dark roasts out there, then we would say try Basecamp, which is Humble Coffee's dark roast. It's from Brazil, and I think you'd like it. Give them a try, humblecoffee.com, or you can look in the show notes. Here's the other thing, Jonah, is around this time, most people sit around the percolator. A percolator, what it does, and again, we're talking about the U.S., we're going to catch up with Europe here in just a second, is it boils coffee and it goes through the ground coffee and extracts coffee, and it goes through it again, and it goes through it again, and goes through it again, and goes through again, and goes through again, and it continues to extract. So you have over-extracted coffee, which does not necessarily taste good. But again, they don't have the standard in the 1950s that we would have today um, to compare it to. So that that was their standard, um, and that's what they were used to. And at this time, 98%, which is crazy uh, because it's not this high these days, but 98% of Americans drank coffee or said that they drank coffee in the household. And their average coffee consumption, and this varies depending on what report you're looking at, was about two and a half cups a day. And if you think about that as the average, like, interesting enough to me, when it was dark roasted coffee, mostly robusta, through a percolator, that's probably the highest caffeine consumption we have ever seen in America
1: to date. Yeah, very interesting. It seems like with the accessibility, uh, again, that outweighed the flavor itself, almost harkening back to what it was like with the instant coffee. Right, and and that's what it was. It, it ended up that it, it's basically
0: all about accessibility. And then also marketing at that time. I mean, you know, the TV was coming in. We just got out of radio really coming in. So all of a sudden where you had no influence anywhere, you've got marketers. Um, You've got Frank Sinatra with like a coffee dedicated song. You've got Ella Fitzgerald with a coffee dedicated song, um, which both are cool, by the way. And we will link in the show notes. You need to listen to them. And so this is becoming part of culture. Now, here's what I was talking about earlier. Let's take a step back and let's see. Let's talk about what Europe has been doing from around 1900 to 1950, 1960. So in America, we are still drinking bad coffee. They start doing stuff like there was this really cool chick uh, named Melita Benz. And she invented the coffee filter in 1908. We think of the coffee filter as just being a presumed or assumed thing, but it was not. And it didn't really hit, I would say, the US mainstream until probably at least the 1970s um, when Mr. Coffee came in. Uh, But before then, uh, we didn't have filtered coffee um, really in the US. But we can thank this young lady, go girl, uh, for bringing this. You also had, around early 1900s, you had the French press, which was invented. And then you had the espresso, which is basically coffee under pressure, born in Italy in 1905. Now, at that time, it was like, you remember when computers were first created and they took up a whole room? Same thing, espresso machine took up a whole room. So, like, it wasn't really, uh, it didn't really get to where a lot of people could use it until well into the 1900s, even close to the middle of the 1900s, as that technology
1: improved and they got it down to something that you could put on the counter in a coffee shop. And by the time it reached the coffee shop, it really revolutionized how coffee was served. Being able to serve such a, a, a high concentrated and frankly delicious uh, cup of coffee in a matter of 30 seconds or so, as opposed to your average of five minute brew time at the time.
0: That's right. And so, you know, traditional Italian culture would be early afternoon, go get you an espresso. You know, you can down it quick tastes good, and you get that caffeine you know as as well uh pound for pound it doesn't have as much caffeine as a cup of drip coffee, a standard cup of drip coffee, um, but it's enough it tastes good. I love a good espresso, just straight shot espresso as do I yep, this is interesting. I want to talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis, which you never thought that you would hear about on a coffee history show nineteen sixty two this was an opportunity that the coffee world took to set their prices. So basically, uh, they came to, we'll say, the U.S. government, and this was the um, what what we would, you know, later call the International Coffee Agreement. They came to the U.S. government and said, "Look, you've got these Marxists or communists knocking at your door in Cuba." Our economies rely heavily on the production and the export of coffee. If you want, which you drink a lot of our coffee, if you want our governments and our economies to remain stable as opposed to unstable and lend to the opportunity of a communist regime or Marxist regime coming in, then we need to have fair prices. For our farmers and for the economy in general within these countries. And this is the one time that the US government said,
1: okay, we'll do that. What we know today is fair trade and equal prices in coffee. We could actually see hearkening back to the 1960s, but that fell away with the disbandment of the uh, international coffee agreement. That's right. And so
0: coffee rode a predictable, stable wave uh, well into the 90s. The ICA continued through all of the Cold War, but then when the Cold War collapsed, you know, so we'll say surviving through the Reagan years, then um, they no longer had that agreement. And so you saw where it was predictable prices then go to... Almost like cut in half as far as the prices that uh, we were paying, like in the early '90s. So it was at, we'll say, or for example, at a dollar thirty-four uh, per pound green coffee. At that time, dropped down after that uh, kind of dissolved to seventy-seven cents, and so then you started seeing. Strain on the farmers, farmers go bankrupt, a little more instability in these countries, and eventually we're going to talk about where the third wave of coffee and an importance put back on the farm and on the farmer and on these countries uh, came. But before we get to that, we're going let's. We were in the '60s and we moved through the '90s. Mister Coffee came out in. 1972, and this was the first filter brewer uh, that we saw here in the U.S. market. And all of a sudden, you could make coffee, and it was almost like, I mean, it is a pour-over, right? I mean, the water technically goes through. Uh, Before this, you had the percolator where it went through, went through, went through, went through, and over-extracted. You got the benefit here of not having that over-extraction, Now, one bad thing is the hot plate. You basically cooked your coffee. So if you didn't drink it right then, then it started tasting rancid, you know, and bad. Uh, And we still see hot plates with coffees today. But the SCA, for example, has a certified brewer list for home coffee batch brewers like this where they do it right as far as getting the temperature to the right temperature. You know, it's not necessarily on a hot plate. You know, it's in a carafe. Um, But these were all advances that we've learned over time. You know, but we have to give Mr. Coffee credit for making a big improvement and progression in the U.S. market in the 70s.
1: I feel like that's almost what we think of with modern coffee, really starting there with the Mr. Coffee Pot Brewer. Right. I mean, everybody's parents had a Mr. Coffee. That's right. I still have a Mr. Coffee. So
0: when my family comes over that is not as uh, geeky when it comes to coffee as I am, um, yeah, I just do like a batch brew of, you know, whatever. Um, Now, luckily, if it's a bunch of people, they're drinking it pretty fast. And so I'm making a couple of pots. So it's not sitting there on the hot plate. But Yeah. I mean, you can't knock them. I mean, it's, it is, we we are continuing, like we said, we're moving more into convenience, convenience, convenience. And then what we're about to see around the corner
1: is, okay, well, what about quality? So that's where we're moving. One thing I find interesting with uh, Mr. Coffee Brewers and that, that general brew method is although it might not be the best, you really have that convenience, but even Not thinking of the convenience, I know of so many people who go to it today just for the nostalgia of it. They prefer the flavor of anything else, but they're always going to go to that childhood coffee experience of waking up and making a pot of coffee. That's right. Yeah, and, and we've talked about on a previous
0: show that sometimes it's that experience that has just as much, if not more, to do with what you consider, quote, good coffee than the coffee itself. And I, I, I'm for sure, I think that is definitely part
1: of the entirety of the experience. Oh, a hundred percent. That's uh, for me personally. I almost value the experience of brewing it in the morning more than what it is I'm actually brewing. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it's definitely an important part of it.
0: We talked about Melita Benz earlier, who was one of those go girl female pioneers in the coffee industry. Erna Newson came along, she started as the secretary in this green coffee buying company and eventually took it over. She was very charismatic, very outgoing. Uh, She was a go-getter. And she was the one who coined the words specialty coffee. So at the time, everybody in the green coffee buying industry was buying commodity coffee. They were getting it as cheap as they could. They were getting as much as they could. And she said, I think what I want to do is I want to buy in small batches from farms or from specific countries, and I want to sell to smaller roasters. And so that's what she did. And she called it specialty coffee. And that's where the term and the entire industry of what I would call good quality taste in coffee came from. So we can thank her for that.
1: When talking about those influential people in Second Wave Coffee, we've got to talk about Alfred Peet, who arguably was one of the grandfathers of Second Wave Coffee or specialty coffee as we know it today, started a coffee shop that isn't necessarily what you know today is go in and get a cup of coffee. You go in and get a bag of roasted beans. This concept of a store is actually what inspired the conception of Starbucks itself. That's right. And so a couple of things there.
0: One is, again, we're talking about dark roasted coffee. Why? Because that was the cultural norm at the time, like the advent of, aha, maybe we can roast it light and maybe it'll taste good. Just, it just wasn't in their thinking. But you have to give them credit, like Alfred Pete and um, the folks who originally started Starbucks, uh, for several things, one being increasing the quality game as far as the coffee itself. And then we'll talk about the cafe culture itself, um, which is really something that Howard Schultz, who eventually took over Starbucks, Uh, I would say brought to us three friends who went to college together in California knew of Pete's and they, they brought that concept back to Seattle and they had a place there uh, at Pike place uh, at the market in downtown Seattle. And again, like you said, Jonah, it was where the beans were roasted dark. They were from single origins. And you went in and you bought those beans. Now, a guy named Howard Schultz, salesman from New York, uh, who but who had, uh, well, he actually sold some stuff to Starbucks. He loved the coffee. At the same time, he also had traveled to Italy and saw cafe culture in Europe, which I will admit, Europe has always up to now been ahead of us in the United States as far as like coffee culture and where things are going. But this is where you're starting to see a shift. So he brings back cafe culture to what we know today. Before that, it was really what I would call greasy spoon as far as if you're going to go somewhere to get coffee now with this second wave, you're taking people, whereas they were drinking it at home, they're now coming into a third space and they are drinking it together, which goes back full circle to what we talked about in uh, England and some of those other places when coffee first hit and you had the
1: cafes there. So now we're really in the modern era of coffee, third wave coffee, you might say. Whoop whoop. So yes,
0: yeah, so third wave coffee. So basically, I guess what that means to me, and, and I'd be interested to to see what your thoughts are, Jonah, is it's coffee that's roasted light or lighter. When you talked about earlier, the darker you roast, it moves towards a roast flavor, the opposite is true. The lighter you roast, the more you have distinction between different taywars or different origins. Um, and there's tons of stuff that affects, you know, it's, it's the varieties of the coffee you're using, pH of the soil. Is it, is it sun or shade grown? Um, all kinds of stuff.
1: Absolutely. You're, you're getting coffee that you can really taste its true origins and its true flavor. Yes. And so we have seen
0: shifts in bad coffee, decent coffee, bad coffee. Now we're back to good coffee when it comes to taste. And with this third wave, a lot of cool stuff we're also seeing is there is a an and audible interest in wanting to make sure everybody in the value chain, especially the farmer, is paid fairly. So we're coming back full circle on what we lost in the early 1990s or late 1980s um, with that international coffee agreement. And we're starting to say, okay, we can pay what we think it's worth to be able to have a good quality coffee, but also you be respected and valued as part of the coffee chain.
1: And with Third Wave also allows a new generation of people to come in and truly appreciate this new type of coffee. We're seeing more and more people get passionate about the coffee they're drinking every day, really wanting to learn more about it. I mean, you sitting at home listening to this podcast, you have decided to take that next step into learning about the coffee you're drinking and that all around is really just a beautiful thing.
0: Yeah, I would say third wave. Part of it also is education and that's where Coffee 101 comes in and and it's something that we enjoy doing and we just love, we just love coffee, and I, I love the the coffee industry itself. Um, I've been in different industries in my life and career, and I will hands down say that coffee people are the most approachable. They're the friendliest. Um, they just, you know, they just take you at face
1: value and give you a hug, high five, and let's drink some coffee. Absolutely. It, uh, coffee really does have the magical power of bringing people together, whether it be you sitting at home, listening to this and drinking a cup of coffee with us, or even the two of us who met because of our love for coffee. It really is a special beverage.
0: That's all we have today for Coffee 101. I have enjoyed the last couple of episodes having Jonah Holland with Unfiltered Coffee join me. And it has been enlightening. Uh, He was able to give me some aha moments as far as coffee history goes. And I was able to hopefully give him and you 101ers out there some enlightening moments. Thank you for listening to the show. I'm Kenneth Thomas, and we will see you next time on Coffee 101. If you want to comment or if you have anything specifically you'd like for us to talk about on the show, please leave us a review and place that comment or that request in the comment section in the review itself. I read every review and I love getting the feedback and I'm glad that you're enjoying Coffee 101. See you next time. Peace out.